So I usually start with a question. So my question this morning is, and maybe it's an apt question for a day like today, based on our prayer time, have you ever felt like giving up? Have you ever felt like giving up? Anybody? I don't know anybody that at some point or another hasn't felt like giving up. Just no more wind left in your sails. No more zeal in your step. No more passion in your life. Just a feeling of maybe depression, discouragement. Have you ever felt like giving up? Yeah, we have felt like giving up. Well, what keeps us from not giving up? Or as Paul puts it, losing heart. Have you ever felt like you have lost heart? I'm just using those things synonymously, like the heart has gone out. And what gives you the motivation to get up and get going every morning? What do you live for? What's your passion? What drives you? What gets you out of bed? What gives you an excuse to get on with your day? you got to find something. Because we live in a world right now, you know this already, and we're experiencing it in our own community, that we have in America experienced an alarming spike in suicide rates. Everybody's noticing it and scratching their heads going, what is going on? And it's not just based on mental health issues. It's not people that have diagnoses that are doing this. According to the study, this is the CDC, the rate of suicide in the U.S. rose nearly 30%. 30%! Between 1999 and 2016. In 2016, nearly 45,000 Americans aged 10 or older died by suicide. 45,000. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. I think this is a serious issue because at some point someone gets up and says, I can't find a reason anymore. I've lost heart. And that's why I think this passage, I mean, you look at the first verse and Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. And then if you look down a little farther in chapter four, he says the same thing again. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. And he explains that we do not, look at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. So this whole passage is bookended by not losing heart. And every time Paul uses that word, or it's used in the Bible to not lose heart, it's always preceded by a do not. So God recognizes that our tendency is to lose heart, to lose spiritual vitality in our lives, to lose passion. And so we have to have a reason. You know, we can perceive Paul to be maybe a spiritual robot, an emotionless spiritual robot that just goes and goes and goes. Or he's some kind of ministry machine and he never struggles with discouragement. Where do you see the passages coming up? He's going to talk about being persecuted and struck down, but not destroyed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Pressed, hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. I want to know how he does that. Don't you? I want to know what drives this guy. And I want you to know what drives this guy so you can have the same thing happening in your life so that you won't have to experience losing heart. Well, he begins with the word therefore, and that tells you that it's based on whatever came before. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to see what it's there for, right? Because what he's about to say is based on what he just said. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry? Chapter three, he just talked about the ministry of condemnation that was a preaching of the law versus the ministry of the spirit of God, that God does a work in our hearts and in our lives. And it's a freeing work, not free to sin, but free to find that God puts a motivation in my life to please him. 
It's an internal thing versus an external thing. So Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry? The ministry of life, the ministry of the Spirit. Man, if I had a ministry, if we were a church that was all about legalism, and all I did was get up here and tell you, and some churches are like this. This is what you're doing wrong today. You guys are lousy Christians. You don't do this. You don't obey God. You don't evangelize. You don't give. On and on and on. What a terrible ministry to have. I would get up and lose heart. If that's all I had to look forward to is telling people what rotten sinners they were all the time. Who wants to do that? But that's not the ministry we have. For our ministry, we get to say, yeah, you're dirty, rotten scoundrels. As my wife says, I'm a naughty mass of wickedness. But, see, I have a ministry that includes a but. God's love for you has demanded in his own heart that he send his son so that whosoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And people need to know this. And so Paul says, since we have this ministry and we've received mercy ourselves, I mean, this is the ministry that saved his life, that he found out about this wonderful grace of God. That He's not saved by his performance. He's saved by God's grace. And that's the mercy that changed his life. God was merciful to him saved him and made his life useful, gave him purpose. The Damascus Road, Paul, you're going to go out and you're going to preach to kings and you're going to open people's eyes so that light could shine in. That's the mercy of God in his life. Anybody here receive mercy from God? He could have destroyed you, but he chose to love you instead. He chose to extend forgiveness and grace to you. So we have a ministry, we have a purpose, and we've received mercy. That's why we don't lose hearts, become weary or utterly spiritless. Is Paul a machine? Is he an emotionless robot? No, he deals with discouragement, but he says there's reasons. The way I think about my life is the reason I don't lose heart. When I get out of bed in the morning, and Paul's been through the ringer in his ministry, hasn't he? I mean, he's faced persecution. He's had people chuck rocks at him because they don't like his message. He's been rejected. He's been run out of town. He's been left for dead. He's been shipwrecked. All this. You think that guy didn't get up one morning and go, man, is it really worth it? Why do I do what I do? It'd be much easier to retire and play golf. Join the Jerusalem Golf Club or something. I wouldn't have to deal with all this trouble. But he said, what keeps me going, what keeps me passionate is the message I have is so important for people to know. How would you finish the sentence? Therefore, because of so-and-so and such-and-such, I don't lose heart. How would you finish that sentence? Therefore, because I have a great job, I don't lose heart. What if you lose it? What if you lose your job? Therefore, because I have great health, I don't lose heart. What if you lose your health? Therefore, because I have a lot of money in the bank, I don't lose heart. You know how that goes. You got to lock in, listen carefully, church. Those are all fine. Having money, being healthy, that's all fine. But if you lose those things, you lose heart. If your passion and your purpose is connected to those things, when those things disappear, your life force disappears. So you have to derive your life passion from something that's eternal and untouchable. Doesn't matter what's going on in my life around me, I have a message to give. Not just Paul. Paul's going to tie this to me and to you. He's going to say to you and I, we're ambassadors for Christ. We beg people to be reconciled to God. That's coming up. Hang around for chapter five. So you got to figure this out because our kids are being sold a bill of goods these days, that life is all about 
getting good grades in school. I'm not saying that's bad, parents. Don't send me emails about that. I got to get good grades. Why? So I can go to a good college. Why? So I can get a good job. Why? So I can make lots of money. Why? So I can be happy. And then they find out that (laughs) real life is a little different than that. Success doesn't bring fulfillment. So they begin to lose heart. Go, what's life about anyway? Why am I alive? What is my purpose? What is my calling? How do I justify my existence? And until you can attach that to God, until you can attach that, why do I show up for work? I show up for work because I can tell people I work with about Jesus. I get to show them Jesus. Yeah, I make some money in the process, but that's secondary. Pastor, you're nuts. Maybe I am. (laughs) You know, I'm like you. I'm born Pastor Steve and came out of the womb and had a contract with Calvary Chapel Fluvanna. I worked. And I had to pray, you know, God, I want to keep doing this job that I do. You need to change my heart. If you're going to make me a pastor, it changed my heart. And my heart began to change. And now it wasn't about nailing metal shoes on horses' feet. I mean, then they go out and they step in all kinds of stuff. And you go, there's all my work right there. It's in the mud now. How can I feel so honorable about that? But oh, when my job takes on different meaning, I had a radio in my truck. And I'd pull up to the barn where I was working and I'd say to the guys that were there, hey, do you mind if I turn the radio? And guess what I'd turn on? At that time, it was called CSN Radio, Calvary Satellite Network. And I'd be preaching and I'm shooing horses and working with the horses. And I know that these guys that are working with me, they're not saved and they're hearing the word. So that's what it came about. And it made me a better worker, not a worse one. It made me a better person to be around in a lot of ways. So it's enough lingering at verse one. What did I say about your pastor getting long-winded this morning? Face it, the Methodists are going to beat you to lunch again. It's just the way it goes. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So when you have a great and useful and true message... You don't need to be crafty or deceitful with it. Maybe this won't mean much to the most of you, but when I was in college, I was a biology major. So people that I went to school with either became doctors or they worked for pharmaceutical sales company. Now, if you've been to school, if you've ever worked in a science class, I know there's some science people in here, there's something called benzene that is used as a universal solvent in chemistry classrooms. And my friend, he scored a job with a company selling benzene. So all he had to do was show up and say, how much do you want? He never had to sell it because everybody needed it. So there was no like hard sell. Come on, you really need my product. It was just an easy thing for him. He didn't have to work hard at it. But I also had a friend years ago in church who was a used car salesman. Now I'm not knocking used car salesman. I'm just telling you his story. He worked in Charlottesville and used car salesman. He got saved. And then he started to feel guilty about some of the tactics that he had to use in his work to sell cars. He and his family moved and he ended up quitting his job, got a new job because we had talked about it. He said, what do I do? I said, better to have a clear conscience than a lot of money in your pocket, I think. Get a job where you can feel good about it. So he quit his job and they've moved back to the area. They live somewhere nearby here now and last I heard, doing great as a family. I want to be able to put my head on the pillow at night and feel really good about what I tell people. And as a pastor... I can tell you, I get to do that. We have this wonderful message of the grace and the mercy of God, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
So therefore, he says, Paul says, there's some things I gave up, whether how he did them, whether others are engaging these things. He calls them, I renounced, I gave up, I walked away from the hidden things that if people knew I did them, I'd be ashamed. It's shameful things that I was doing. Anybody here had to renounce some things of shame when you became a Christian? Maybe today. Maybe today. There's someone here that has to renounce some hidden things of shame as part of being a Christian. I'm walking away. When I became a Christian, there were certain things that I walked away from. I renounced filthy language out of my mouth. I'm no longer cursing. I don't need that language anymore. I got the word of God. I got spiritual language now. But for Paul, it had to do with his preaching. He says, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully. Walking in craftiness. If you want to sell something and it's not a real easy sell, you got to figure out how to dress it up, how to make it look good. You got to be crafty. And you play on people's weaknesses or people's fears or people's desires to rope them in. I know a pastor who got his PhD in marketing the church. Like you got to market the church. His PhD was in marketing the church, which sounds to me a lot like how do we be crafty and get people in? We craft an experience on Sunday morning. We craft a sermon. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but I'm saying sometimes we can get so crafty that we get a little crafty. And you can move from what we call, what you experience here is called exegesis. You're going to learn a little seminary terminology today. Exegesis. Exa means out of. Exegesis means we look at the word of God and we try to draw out the message that's there. Here's what Paul is saying. We had a guy that came to visit the church a number of months ago. He was involved in a church plant and we were just talking about preaching. We said, you just got to come and see it. Well, you don't know what you experience here is somewhat rare in the Christian world today. So after the sermon, after the church service, we talk and he said, you know, I see the difference. The difference is, is that what I'm used to in church is the pastor has a message and he just comes and says, here's what I want to tell you. And now I'm going to use the Bible to support. That's called eisegesis. I read into the Bible what I want it to say. I have a message. I want to tell people a certain truth as the pastor. Therefore, now I go to the word of God and I try to find passages that support what I want to say. I take them out of context and I add a few little sermon illustrations there and you leave going, wow, that's what God says. When maybe it was just the pastor that was saying it and not God at all. That's called eisegesis, reading in. Exegesis, what this man said to me is, I see the difference. One pastor will say, here's what I want to tell you and here's some Bible verses to back it up. But what you said is, Here's what God is telling us. Here's what Paul was saying. And that's all I've ever attempted to do. That's all good preaching is, is so that you understand what God is saying to you. And Paul said, I have this message of truth now. That's what he said, by the manifestation of the truth. All I have to do is lay the truth out there. I think it was Martin Luther that said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just got to let it out of the cage. It'll defend itself. So not walking in craftiness. If you like restaurant terminology, if that food is getting a little bit stale to its expiration date, maybe the meat is just about done, you can spice it up and sauce it up and still serve it. And then you go home, you get food poisoning after you eat it. But at the time, it tasted good, smelled good. But what you didn't know is there was deceit behind it. It was crafted so that you wouldn't know. Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
we just get to serve Jesus up right out of the can and he's good just like that. Isn't that true, church? Amen. So walking in craftiness and pastors try to do that. Let's just get tricky and creative and I'm not against trickiness and creativeness, but the power's in the word or handling the word of God deceitfully. It's a word that means a decoy or it speaks of a fishing bait, lure. So, you know, you're going fishing, you got a hook, but you hide the hook with some kind of yummy looking thing. And so Paul says there are people that do that. They handle the word of God deceitfully. It's a bait and switch. Let's play secular music to get people in. And let's tell a lot of good stories with very little of the word of God to lure people in. Whatever you lure people in, you have to keep people in with. Whatever you strive to obtain, you have to strive to maintain. So to me, the word of God is just the easiest thing out there. You know, there's some pastors that will never deal with the hot buttons, the issues of our day. Never talk to you about what the Bible says about homosexuality or about abortion or about this or that. They're hot button topics. And the minute they take a stand on that, the minute they say, here's what the word of God says, they know they'll lose half their congregation. So they won't do it. Instead of letting them go, they'll deal craftily. It's not about what pastors say all the time. It's about what they don't say. So I don't want to tell you all of what the Bible says. I'm going to be a little deceitful about that. Paul says, I renounce all of that. So the next question is, Paul, if you've got such a great ministry and this great message, don't you get discouraged by rejection? I mean, don't you want to give up when people reject or people disagree with the message? I mean, if the message is that good right out of the can, why doesn't everyone believe it? Well, verse 3 tells us the answer. So Paul says, but even if, our message is great, but even if our gospel is veiled, hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And now Paul explains, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Paul now describes why people don't believe. He describes what lost people look like, what they're really experiencing, because the fault is not the message's fault. So again, how Paul can stay encouraged is because I know I got a great message. I don't judge the validity and the power of the message by how many people receive it. Because I know not everybody's going to receive it. But instead, what I recognize is that I'm going to tell people about Jesus and there's something else going on in their lives. He says, number one, they're perishing. They're being lost. They're going through the wide gate that leads to destruction. And many people find it. And here's why they're perishing. Look at verse four. This is bone jarring to me, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. There is a blindness that is much worse than visual blindness. And that is mental or spiritual blindness. He talks about the God of this age. They don't believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And that's because of the minds have been blinded by who? The God of this age. So this is another name for Satan. And he is the one who rules over in not complete authority. Obviously, God is in complete authority, but he has given Satan a place. He's cast Satan to the earth. And Satan now, the Bible says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's also called the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world. So there is a thought process, a mindset of this age, the age of man before the day of the Lord comes at the end of human history. God steps in and he sets up the day of the Lord, the millennial reign of Christ, when he rules and reigns with a rod of iron. And that's when every knee will bow and, and all of that. But for now, 
God has given man free will and autonomy and all that. And so the God of this age is very busy pulling the wool over people's minds saying, you don't need God, giving us all kinds of alternatives to God. You're your own person. Don't let anybody tell you what to be. Be independent. Do your own thing. Be your own man. It's the spirit of rebelliousness and independence. That's the spirit of this age. So the biggest tool that Satan has is not power or success or other things. The biggest tool, listen very carefully because it says it right here, even if our gospel is veiled, the biggest tool that Satan has is a curtain. And it's a curtain that he drapes over people's minds. That's where Satan wants to attack your mind. Your mind. How many of you like to sleep in in the morning? Well, you're here at the 9 o'clock service, so I could ask that at 11 o'clock service, get a different response. But a curtain, how many of you need complete darkness to sleep? Like you can't get to sleep unless the room is totally dark. You got big, thick curtains at your house. Or we even call them, how many of you have blinds? You have blinds. They're even called that because it keeps out the light. The light is shining, but you're like, man, I just, I went to bed late last night. I was up watching YouTube videos and playing video games. And now I got to get some sleep and it's eight o'clock in the morning. The sun is shining. So I got to draw the curtains to keep the light out. When that happens to a person's mind, no matter how hard you try to show them, the mind is blinded. The curtain exists to block light. You don't create darkness. Darkness is the state of being that is in the absence of light. Light is in control of everything. Once the light comes in, we turn on the lights, where's the darkness go? Disappears. And when you turn off the light, where's the darkness go? It comes back. You know, tonight when we go home, we won't say, hey, can someone remember to turn on the darkness before you leave? The darkness is already on, but light drives it out. And there is a being, Satan, whose primary job is to keep you from seeing the light. Just to feed you all kinds of stuff into your mind about how you don't need a savior, that you don't need a God, that evolution can explain everything, and we got a big bang. We got all kinds of alternate explanations to anything and everything that are godless. And where do those come from? They come from the pit of hell. All you need is to doubt. You don't have to worship him. Just keep that curtain shut. Don't let the light in. And Satan is happy. It's crazy. The first couple times we went on our trip to Bonaire, we were staying with the woman there who, she's got solar power, so they didn't use a whole lot of electricity. So 7.30 at night, there's no lights on. We have headlamps on trying to read a little bit, you know, do some Bible reading or read a book. And so we're sitting there reading. It's dark out because it gets dark around 7, 7.30 at night there. So we're trying to read and, oh, hell, what time is it? I mean, it feels like it's like 10 o'clock at night. It's 7.30. I'm ready for bed. So you've got this chemical in your body called melatonin, and it responds to light and darkness. So when it's dark, you tend to drift off to sleep. Or when your pastor's preaching long, it can have the same effect. So when darkness comes, that's why Paul has to tell the church, wake up. You're children of the light. When you're in darkness, you tend to fall asleep spiritually. And the curtain starts to close in your life. And you know this. Have you ever watched the news recently and watched the argument, listened to the rhetoric and the discussion about all kinds of different issues and said, what are people thinking? And you've said that out loud. Have you said that? If you've said it, raise your hand. 
Uh, yeah, look at how many. I can't believe we're having this discussion. These are intelligent people. These are not high school dropouts or kids, that, people that don't have it. These are intelligent, well-educated people whose minds are blinded by the God of this age. There is no other explanation. Like, how do you not see this? Because the minds are blinded by the God of this age. Well, then, if our minds can be blinded by the God of this age, then what is the hope? And what's the answer? Verse 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's the answer. Preach Jesus. How does Paul not lose heart? What keeps him going even though he lives in a world where the preaching has gone defunct and is full of deceit and craftiness, even though he lives in a world where people's minds have been blinded by the God of this age, he says, man, I just bring the light. That's all I got to do. And that helps me, that encourages me because if I had to be real tricky and crazy, I'm just not that way. But if all I got to do is turn on the light, man, I can figure that out. Years ago, my dad had a cartoon in his office. How many of you remember the Frank and Ernest cartoons? You remember those, Frank and Ernest? Nobody. How many of you remember what a newspaper is? <laughs> it's Frank and Ernest. They were these two guys. They were kind of, you know, boneheads or whatever. They were kind of these two guys that were not real intelligent. And they're applying for a job. And this is a one-frame cartoon. And there's a guy there. There's a huge toggle switch, big toggle switch on the wall, like a light switch. And the top says on and the bottom says off. And Frank and Ernest are looking at the switch and the boss is pointing at it. And Frank says to Ernest, could you run through that again? <laughs> I mean, if it was more complicated for me, that's why I love just the clear teaching of the Word of God, because it's simple. I have an outline. I have a context. I know where I'm going. I just get to turn the light on. The greatest compliment, I've told you that the greatest compliment I can ever receive is that when you preach, I understand what God is saying. Not, oh, our pastor's so creative. Oh, our pastor's so funny. Our pastor's this. Our pastor's that. Paul says, it's not about the pastor. He says, we don't preach ourselves. Paul's not preaching Paul, but we preach Jesus Christ, the Lord. Not just the Savior, the Lord. That takes so much pressure off of me. People lose heart when they feel pressure that they have to be something. When I know that I get up in the morning, all I got to be is a servant of God. I don't have to have a big church. I don't have to have a successful this or successful that. I don't have to impress anybody. All I got to do is get up and say, yes, Lord, what do you want me to do today? I can do that. Can you do that? I can do that. That's simple. I need it simple. That's what Paul says. We don't preach ourselves. When you're talking to people, are you busy preaching yourself? How much time do you spend talking about yourself? Your resume, all that you've done, how great you are, all the people you know, all the friends you have all the things you're into, all the accomplishments that you've accomplished. That pressure, that success pressure, that leads to discouragement. Just ask kids these days, the pressure to succeed. I'm not saying success is wrong, but when you're preaching yourself all the time, it can lead to very difficult mindsets. I'm just a servant. Whether I'm a CEO of a company or I clean bathrooms at the airport, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And one is no better than the other. See, we think that because I have a job that's more valuable, I must be more valuable. 
boy, is that wrong? If I have more money to my name, I must be more valuable than someone who has less money. You see how your mind gets distorted? That's the God of this age who says that. Our Heavenly Father says, do not hold the faith of our Lord with any partiality. Do not play favorites. So (laughs) this is so easy because Paul says, I don't preach myself. Why? Because I can't command light to shine out of the darkness. Look at verse 6. It's the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who shone in our hearts. When did God command light to shine out of darkness? Check back in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And God said, boom, light be. And light was. Now, this is interesting because he didn't create the sun until later. Light existed before the sun existed. And people say, wait, wait a second, Pastor. I, the, what light comes from the sun. I don't know if I can believe Genesis. Well, in a quick Google search, I found an article reprinted in a number of magazines. This one was from Forbes. Science uncovers the origin of the first light in the universe. Let there be light isn't just biblical, it's science. I love it when the world catches up with God. Isn't that great? You know, (laughs) tell us something we didn't already know. It says, when we look out at the universe today, highlighted against the vast empty blackness of the sky are points of light, stars, galaxies, nebulae, and more. Yet there was a time in the distant past before any of those things had formed, just after the Big Bang, and uh, you know where we come from with that, where the universe was still filled with light. So I'm not going to go into all the details of cosmic radiation and all that, but just know that even science now agrees that light existed before the sun and the stars existed. And where did that come from? Paul says that God, that it wasn't a big bang, it was a big word. The eternal God spoke into existence light. And his word has creative power. And he says light be and light was. That same God can speak. His word can dispel the darkest heart and bring light to it. I can't do it. Calvary Chapel can't do it. Look, we live in an age, we live in a very church-centric age where it's all about our church and our church and we preach ourselves. I love my church. And again, I do love my church. But our message to the world is I love my Savior because he's the one that's given us the life we have. We have to be very careful. And we are I am very sensitive to preaching ourselves because let me tell you, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, our ministry, me as a pastor, I have no power to do anything worthwhile in your life. Believe me, I wish I did. I wish I could unzip your chest sometimes. You ever met anybody, you know someone like, maybe it's one of your kids or your spouse, or you just want to unzip the chest, find the switch on the heart, flick it, zip it back up, and life is different. Don't you wish you could do that? How many of you have tried? I'll nag him into the kingdom. Since I can't find the zipper on the chest, I better start praying for him. Because the God of this age has blinded his mind, or her mind, or their mind. Better start praying. Because once that word comes, once that light comes, once that heart is open to that light, the darkness has to go. See, people don't want to believe, or don't want to let the light in, because then they'll have to believe it. God's word is so powerful, you can't reject it. Once you let it in, it begins to bring change. So I can't let it in because I know if I let it in, I'm going to have to change and I like where I am right now. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness who has shown in my heart, in our hearts, and and in Paul's heart, 
Look, remember, it's the mind that we're talking about to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Once you have a knowledge of the glory of God, and where do you find the knowledge of the glory, the greatness of God's person, the greatness of God's power, the greatness of God's plan, all those things. Where do you see that? How can I see this eternal, invisible God? You see it in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is so important, because he shows us God. He is the express image of of God in all aspects, stuffed into a human body. That's how Paul doesn't lose heart, at least part one. There's other reasons Paul doesn't lose heart, so you've got to come back for that. We see it in the glory, in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What a good morning for an invitation, huh? Maybe somebody here. The light is dawning. Uh, Peter said, oh, that the light the morning star would rise in your heart. Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember that day where the sun came up in your heart and all of a sudden everything looked different? Everything felt different? There's hope. There's a future. There's a brightness. There's a joy. Anybody here had a dark heart? A lot of darkness in my heart. But God's love and his truth and the knowledge of his glory came streaming in. So if that's you this morning and you need light in your life, today's the day you can open your heart. The eyes of your understanding can be enlightened and your life will never be the same. I want to ask you to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Commit to follow him for the rest of your life. Church, will anybody that does that be disappointed? Never be disappointed.